Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. Well, good evening and welcome to Breaking the Silence. I'm Greg Williams. Welcome to my home. As I'm just looking out the back window here uh, that goes all the way around the penthouse, uh, I'm looking at the most beautiful city in the world, Houston, Texas. I really, truly believe that. Looking over the medical center where I work there, Baylor College of Medicine, uh, inside the Texas Children's Hospital uh, uh, arena. And I'm also looking right across the street at where the Houston Livestock Rodeo is taking place. Right, They had the cook-offs all yesterday. So the next few days, this place, and then for the next month, it's going to be a madhouse down here with traffic. But we always look forward to all the country stars and all the cattle coming in and all the people. It's just a great time here in Houston, Texas. We just welcome you to the program tonight. We're going to have a very interesting but a different program tonight and our guest may think that he's just going to be talking about his book that he's written that uh, is one of his many 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 books but i'm going to try to pick into some of the things i found out about him in the past if he's willing to open up those can that can of worm or two that we can uh talk about and uh because he has a some people you know i have a resume this man has a CV, which is a complete different ballgame. It's a little more established and more professional than mine, uh, but it is impressive. And we're going to bring him in here uh, just shortly. Uh, if you want to get involved, there's several different ways tonight, and we'd love to have you call in. You can, uh, number one, get on the Facebook page. It looks like Chatter by the Darkest page is up and running. We are being broadcast right now over the radio around the world. Everybody uh, on the other side of the world can listen to us. Uh, but if you want to get on that Shattered by the Darkness uh, Facebook page, my son Curtis in the United States Army in Seattle, Washington, is running that page for me right now. And if you have any comments or questions, he will read those and then text those to me. You can also uh, text right here at 832-396-6525. That rings my personal cell phone. I'll be glad to, uh, during the commercial break, uh, read those texts and let your question be known to our guest or simply call the wonderful people at the BBS radio station at 888-627-6008. And you can talk to PJ, and he will patch you right on through to our guest tonight. And we can hear your voice uh, live, and everybody around the world can hear you too. So we would love to have your comment or your thought right on the phone, 888-627-6008. Eight. You know, I always like to, to start the program off with just a couple things that's happening in my world. Not that it's interesting, but it's things that's on my mind. And every now and then I need to be um, prodded a little bit to get started with something. 
Um, okay, let's let's look at it this way. It's getting ready for taxes to be done. I'd soon have a root canal to do my taxes, but I know I need to start working on that and getting everything together. And it made me think uh, this week as I was trying to put everything in line. There's a lot of things that we need to start doing. And uh, so I just jotted some things down. As we're getting ready to have uh, a new grandchild come on to the scene in the next week or two, could be any time we're that close. I want to start trying to teach my children, my grandchildren, to value moments and not things. And maybe in that, I need to also uh, learn that same rule uh, myself to be able to understand and, and learn that it's the small things in life, those moments in life that make all the difference. I spent the early years of my fatherhood working and working and slinging sweat uh, to get more things for my kids when I really believe my kids would have just preferred more moments with their father. And I don't want to make that same mistake with my grandchildren. And I want to start doing that uh, with this new grandchild coming on to the scene. And, you know, we wor- we always worry about, you know, what they're going to become tomorrow. What do you want to be when you grow up? And you want to be a police, a police officer, a fireman, or a doctor, or a teacher, or whatever. And we always want to know what they want to be tomorrow. I need to start realizing that they are somebody already today. Somebody really, really special today. And not always put everything into the future and take those moments just to share with the people that surround you and in your life, especially family, especially friends. People that you work with and your coworkers. Um, and then also, I think I need to start not getting hung up on trying to be perfect. I need to start accepting things when they are less than perfect. Because let's, let's wake up and smell the coffee here. Nothing is going to be perfect tomorrow. Tomorrow's not going to be a perfect day. God didn't design everything to be perfect because since the beginning of time we kind of messed it up and now till the end of the time until he comes back we're going to live in an imperfect world there's still going to be people that say things do things interrupt uh our day dance on our nerves tomorrow at the office and i just need to recognize as we start another week that it's not going to be a perfect week but make the best of what i have with the time that I have. And then I need to start making advancements every day on a goal. And I think when people are diagnosed with diseases, diagnosed with uh, things that may shorten their life from what they anticipated, we sometimes look at our own lifespan and go, hey, wait, Every single day is a gift, and I need to make sure that I I spend those minutes enjoying that gift of time 
But let's face it, if you want to lean in and really get into this, you can. But let's face it, none of us are guaranteed one more hour. Whether we've been diagnosed at MD Anderson across the street with cancer, or I'm walking across the street and getting hit by uh, the Houston tram. We're not guaranteed one more day. So we need to enjoy the moments that we have, the people that we have, and please, folks, the family that we have, and then start taking full accountability for our lives. We are accountable for who we are, what we are, how we treat people, and how we allow people to treat us. We teach people sometimes to treat us bad. It's okay for you to talk to me that way. Those days are over. I'm getting to that age where I'm, I hit 60 years old and I'm becoming a grumpy old man. You're not going to talk to me that way. I'm not going to allow that. Every now and then uh, somebody will get excited with me and start raising their voice or using language that I don't appreciate. It's just like, wait, if that's the tone you're going to have, if that's the language you're going to use, I'll talk to you tomorrow when you change both and walk out. We need to teach people to respect, but in that same voice, respect other people their equity, their equality, and their value of each and every person that we come across, no matter what economic status they're in, no matter what role they're in, uh, in your organization that you work in or in the church that you uh, worship in or into the store that you you uh, shop in. We need to respect everybody from the CEO to the very people that are cleaning the bathrooms in those places. They all deserve that respect. And then lastly, we need to start focusing on the positive outcomes. How can I make tomorrow a better day for me? What can I do to not only make it a better day for me, but for the people around me? I want to be the person still that I used to be in my younger energetic days. When I walked into the room, I shined a little bit of light. My bulb is growing dim the older I get. I want to rekindle that light and try to just shine light into dark places this week like I haven't in a while and try to be more accountable for a positive attitude, a positive outcome of how I can make a difference in somebody's attitude tomorrow. So just as we start a new week, or maybe some of those things. Take one of those and just try to apply it in your life because as I open up to all the papers and receipts tomorrow, I got to start my taxes. You could want to do that, but I'm going to try to think positive. Our government needs all that money. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm going to try to say something positive about it as we start a new week. So I hope that helps me out a little bit. 888 and that is enough stuff about me. We have a guest with us tonight. And just listen where he's been and then listen to where he's going. I don't understand it, but we're going to get to the core of this. William J. Carl is a Greek scholar. He is and was a pastor, a seminary professor, and I believe a seminary president for decades, and he lived a life that served peace, faith, society. He wrote eight nonfiction books uh, about religion, 
and has probably traveled places in this world that I didn't even know existed, lecturing at some of the most prestigious colleges that I only read about, let alone would ever have the uh, ability to be able to tour the campuses. And he was the speaker at some of these most prestigious uh, universities in our country. And now he has decided to leave all that behind to ink on a page a book of suspense, thriller, action-packed, Alfred Hitchcocky type of uh, novel, an international thriller about a one-time CIA assassin who left his trade to become a minister. Could this be a confession that he's making tonight to us tonight? I doubt it, but I want to find out more about this book, how you can get your hands on it, how if you like these type of books, you're going to want to get this, because we have some reviews by some very important people. But I just want to get to him in tonight and welcome him to the program, William Carl. William, can you hear me tonight? I can. Great hey, to be good with evening. you. Good evening. Good to see you. Good to see you. And behind all of those illustrious leatherback books is that book right over your shoulder of yes. the, there it is, the Assassin's Manuscript. What in the world? <laughs> Here you have been going around the, the country talking and professing and showing the intelligence of the, how the brain works. And then in, you know, because me being a pastor too, uh, we're going to have a kindred spirit. Uh, I understand some days wanting to get out of that, uh, but how did you go from all of that, because I want to find out more about that, into writing fiction? Yeah, it, it was an interesting story in the sense that um, Alex Haley, the author of Roots, yes. was sitting in my office. I was pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Dallas. Really? Uh, our service was across the state of Texas to half a million people live on the ma major ABC network. And uh, Alex was a friend of our family. And this was over 30 years ago. And he was sitting in my office and he said, uh, have you written anything? I said, yeah, I've written several books. And he said, well, let me see one of them. So I pulled one off the shelf, which was a set of lectures I'd given at Princeton. Uh, and it's now been translated into Korean, and I've been to Seoul a couple of times to lecture on it and a couple of other books. Anyway, he sits there thumbing my book that I were lectures at Princeton, and he looks up and he says, Bill, you need to write a novel. This is Alex Haley, the author of Roots, saying, Unbelievable. you need to write a novel. And I said, Alex, what would I write a novel about? And he said, well... Uh, uh, and no, I, first of all, I said, what makes you say that? And he said, well, two things. One, you know how to write and you write really well, which was a nice compliment from Alex Haley. I would and think so. second, you know how to tell a story and that's all a novel is. And I said, well, what kind would I write? And he said, what do you like? And I said, oh, Tom Clancy, you know, Robert Ludlum, the Jack Ryan, Jason Bourne, action espionage, write one like that. I said, I don't know anything about that. I'm a seminary professor. I'm a pastor. And I was later a seminary president up in Pittsburgh. And he said, well, you're a Greek scholar and you like old manuscripts. Pull those together and see what comes out. So that's what I did. And it's a Dan Brown meets Daniel Silva combination. 
And it's just very explosive. But get this, uh, you mind if I call you Gregory? Is oh, absolutely. Just yeah. call Greg. Yeah, I'm yeah, fine. Yeah, it, it is a, and you could call me Bill, except the book is not in Bill Carl, it's William. So we, we have to go with William. Anyway, okay. uh, so what happened was it took me 30 years to get it done. And 12 revisions, get this, 12 oh, revisions. Because I was busy. I was a busy pastor. I was a busy seminary president, professor. And I was just writing when I could, but I was also revising. The first version of this novel was 740 pages. <laughs> yes. I took yeah. it into a literary agent in Dallas and I dropped it on his desk. You never broke my desk with that thing. <laughs> Go take 200 pages out and then I'll look at it. Well, Gregory, that was like killing your own children. I mean, you know, uh, oh. take 200 pages. Out. So, uh, Fortunately, I had a PhD and knew how to edit, and I've edited books before, so it wasn't as painful. But someone said, learn how to write screenplays. So I said, okay. So I did. I took screenwriting courses, and then I, I wrote a screenplay that won the Telluride Indie Fest Screenwriting Contest, uh, which is a totally different type story. It's, it's a romantic comedy about a matchmaker named Maggie Binder who finds out she's dying of cancer and tries to match her husband with someone before she's gone. Now, I've actually known women like this, and maybe you have too. They're dying of something, and they want their husbands to be happy after they're gone. Other ones say, I just want you to be miserable, never get married again. But but some of them love them so much, they say, you you know, that one down the street, you marry that floozy down the street, I will rise up and haunt you, <laughs> right? And, you know, that one might be good in bed, but this is the one you need for a wife. So that's what Maggie, the matchmaker, is doing. And she drives the story and she does choose her hospice nurse uh, as the one that he should marry, not realizing they were lovers in college. Now, the whole audience knows, but she doesn't know. And she's shoving them out on dates, and the whole town is gossiping about it. Well, when they fall deeply in love again, uh, she finds out she's going to live. And now, how do we unravel this <laughs> dilemma? And it's called Maggie's Perfect Batch, and it, it, and it won the uh, Telluride. Well, um, I turned it into a play in Birmingham, Alabama at a regional theater, and it raised $100,000 the opening night uh, at the, for the Bruno Cancer Center. And now, with a former colleague from Houston at Memorial Hi. Drive Presbyterian Church. I know where that's at. Alan Pote, and I co-authored a musical in Houston in 1971 that we put on for the whole city of Houston. So I reconnected with Alan to say, let's turn my screenplay play into a musical. And we've already written a bunch of songs. And anyway, that's a side story. So I learned how to write screenplays. And that's what helped me tighten the novel. Well, you know, Alex Haley's book, Roots, probably wasn't 720 oh. pages. <laughs> oh, it was enormous. It was enormous. And, and, but it wasn't, no, it wasn't 740. But this was the manuscript, 740, yeah. you know. So, uh, but that's how I got into writing fiction. And it's totally different from writing nonfiction. Nonfic, I can roll out of bed and write nonfiction. But fiction yeah. is about characters. And it's about plot. And it's about creating something out of nothing. 
which is not easy to do. <laughs> now, is this something that you're going to domino into more and more? You're already working on another one? I mean, this you only know, took 30 yeah, years. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. I am now 75. Got uh, one more in you. Yeah, so maybe I make it to 105 with another 30 <laughs> years. By the way, I will tell you that I believe the new middle age is 60 to 90. You want to know? Amen. How, you want to know how I got that? So uh, there's a Chautauqua is up in the Western New York where all the uh, people come from all over the country and they bring in, well, he's deceased now, but the David McCullough's and the Beach Boys and all. And you, when you speak and lecture there, there, there are 500,000 in the auditorium and it's, it's a really exciting. I call it the Disney World for the chronologically mature because you're dodging scooters and walkers and everything, but you can't get your senior citizen discount at Chautauqua until you're 90. So <laughs> the new middle age is 60 to 90, right? And so I'm now halfway through the middle age and uh, just kind of makes you feel younger to think of it that way. That's fun. Did uh, when you start writing the book uh, thirty years ago, uh, did you just let your mind go, or did you know exactly where each of those characters were going to go, or did it develop and it kind of surprised you as you went? Oh, oh, the surprise, yes, definitely the surprise. In fact, on many interviews, I've said, you know, you get to know these characters so well, they start talking to you. I don't know if you've heard other authors say that, but it yeah. sounds like you're hearing voices or whatever. But the truth is. You get to know them so well. They say things like, no, that's not how I would say that. This is how I would say that. Or, no, I wouldn't do that in this. This is what I would do in this situation. Uh, and one of the things you learned, I learned in screenwriting, training in screenwriting, is that every character has a want, something that character wants. And it, it's named fairly early. And it's not just the main character. You want to make sure... You have multifaceted subsidiary characters, so they so it's not just about the main character. Well, that character wants something, and then you, as the author, set up obstacles that keep that character from getting what she or he wants, and then eventually, finally, that character gets it, and there's that great resolution. And a lot of people misunderstand that. For example, the uh, uh, the movie Rocky, the very oh, first yeah. one, Sylvester Stallone. Do you remember what he said he wanted in that movie? His want was, I just want to go the distance. Our actor son in New York can do Sylvester Stallone better than anybody. Uh, I wish he could do it for us. I am the doll. I mean, when he does <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, it's unbelievable. But but uh, he said, I wanted to go the distance. So when you gets to the end of the of the movie, remember, he loses the fight. And you think, oh, no, no. He wanted to go. That was his want. So he got what he wanted. So all the characters have to have that. And uh, I will say that this book, Assassin's Manuscript, is different from a traditional Tom Clancy or Robert Ludlum, because even though it's international espionage, um, it's not the typical, the Americans are all good guys and the terrorists are all bad guys. It's much more nuanced. And I don't remember if it was Augustine or whoever who said there is good in every evil person and evil in every good one. So we're all broken and flawed 
You yeah. know, Henry Ward Beecher said, I don't yes. need John Calvin to tell me about total depravity. I have my congregation to show me that. We're all flawed, <laughs> right? In fact, you mentioned something earlier I, I wanted to, I shared in a, a class this morning about people who say, you know, want to be perfect. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect person. And uh, there was a preacher one Sunday who was preaching about how Jesus was the most, the only perfect person. And he challenged the congregation. Anybody here ever known anybody who was perfect? And an older man stood up at the second pew and he said, sir, you've known some. Yes. Who? My wife's first husband. <laughs> the only perfect person I've ever known. Now, so no one is perfect. And, and that's why when people say, when you say, how are you doing? And they say, I'm good. No, I didn't ask about your moral status. We use that for everything. Do you have to use the restroom? No, I'm good. What has that got to do with peeing? You know, <laughs> I gave I gave a whole sermon once on are you as good as you think you are, you know, right? So we're all flawed. We're all broken. And yeah. so this book, this is not a religious book, by the way. This is a secular book with some religious characters and some religious themes. So I do have, I do have a main character who was a CIA hitman, has something terrible go on earlier where he's trying to kill a Bedouin terrorist and he, the bomb goes off up in western, uh, west of uh, uh, Manhattan, uh, 114, upper west side. And by accident, he kills his own wife who come, is coming down that same street and the fiance of a woman in Maryville, Tennessee, and the Bedouin's girlfriend. Now, in the me intervening years, he's gone to seminary and he's come to Maryville, Tennessee, which is, by the way, where I live now. And he's come to be close to the woman whose fiance he killed by accident, not realizing that she was going to get interested in him. And she does. And then she's tra traipsing all over the Middle East with him, falling in love with him, not knowing that he killed her fiance by accident. So there's this unlikely romance going on. When, when I've said this is about a CIA man who becomes a minister in Maryville, Tennessee, some interviewers say, wait a minute, is this autobiographical? <laughs> and I pause and smile and say, well, you know, all writing is autobiographical. And I did have a course in seminary. It was an extracurricular course. Uh, I had three years of Taekwondo karate. It was to handle rough parishioners, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, I understand how to describe the action scenes in Assassin's Manuscript, right? So. That's fantastic. I'll tell you what, I'm going to enjoy this next segment because this, this is fun. Uh, we're going to take our first break uh, so I can wipe my eyes away because I've been laughing so good. We're, we're, we're having the same sense of humor, and I really like that. Uh, on the other side of this, you took one of the questions out of my uh my repertoire that I was thinking while you were talking. Is there anybody that you are similar to in the book. And I want to find out that right after this commercial break. That's going to be about 82 seconds. 888-627-6008. We'll be right back with William J. Carl. Hang with us.
RBI Publishing that brought you the international bestsellers, A Child Called It, and the Chicken Soup for the Soul series comes the latest book by Dr. Gregory Williams, Shattered by the Darkness. This book describes the horrific abuse that Dr. Williams suffered at the hands of his father for over 12 years and the damaging effect of keeping everything silent about that abuse for 30 years. If you're looking for that book that you can't put down, then pick up a copy of Shattered by the Darkness by Dr. Gregory Williams at all Barnes & Noble stores, Amazon, and Books A Million. Now, back to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Welcome back. I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, our interview tonight with uh, William J. Carl, and he is the author of uh, Assassin's Manuscript. It's right over his shoulder there, and he has it right there in his hands, too, if you want to see a close-up cover of that. And you can get on Amazon this very second and uh, get it. And is it also in um, where you can hear it? Where did you, or are you the voice? Oh, actually, uh, our actor son in New York uh, who has been in movies and on TV. He's been on Blue Bloods. Uh, oh. His name's David Carl, and he was uh, two years ago in George Clooney's The Tender Bar in a wonderful, fun scene with Ben Affleck. And then in addition, uh, last summer, he was on Netflix's final season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And wow. uh, he plays Teddy the cue card guy and had a riot. <laughs> He had a lot of fun with Rachel Brosnahan and all the actors on. And he has two one-man shows that he's done and gotten New York Times reviews. Uh, one's called uh, Gary Busey's One Man Hamlet. It's all of Hamlet as the actor Gary Busey. It's it's outrageous. And another one called Trump Lear. It's Trump and King Lear. I mean, it's, a, it's another outrageous one-man show. But he is an expert on international accents. So uh -huh. in, in his audio version of this, you can get it on audiobooks. Just click on the free sample. You'll get a little piece of what the book sounds like. Uh, in this book, he does British, Scottish, Russian, German, Italian, uh, and, and actually New Orleans Cajun, uh, the <laughs> one character... <laughs> <laughs> the C the CIA director Drew Farley is from is is a uh, real Cajun and uh and East Tennessee and he he is trained uh, on amazing training in acting. In fact, one of his buddies from University of Evansville is Rami Malek, who won the Oscar a, a couple of years ago. And so David does, and we had more fun, Gregory. I bet you did. This is the only father-son author-narrator collaboration in the country that I know about. <laughs> Do you know any parent-child author-narrators? I mean, I don't know any other. No. Uh... <laughs> and it's a that riot. Great. It's a riot listening to him. And it kind of, we were always, always close. We have two sons and one's a teaching tennis pro in Washington, D.C. after playing tennis all over Texas before we before he went to college and was captain of his team. He's a teaching tennis pro. And the and this younger one is 
and we're close. Our family, we have a very close family. Uh, and uh, Jane, my wife, just has kept this. She's the glue that's like most spouses kept the glue that kept us all together. But we had so much fun. He would send me four chapters that he'd narrated. And I'd find a preposition he missed and we'd change things. And anyway, it was fun. That's great. Well, I recommend it. I, I can't imagine somebody not enjoying the book. And uh, it, does it have anything similar with Alfred Hitchcock? Because Alfred Hitchcock is yeah. my favorite by far. So there's yeah. nothing even. Well, well, that it has a different kind of suspense. It, it really is more international espionage. But there are very suspenseful moments. There's no question about it. And you ask if I'm I'm like any of the characters. And yeah. I would say I am. Uh, I think there. I think the main character, Adam Hunter, is the one I'm closest to. And by the way, this is a beach read with literary depth, okay? Because it has 77 very short chapters with hooks at the end of each. So it just keeps you flying fast-paced. But it's also got literary depth. And here's how that works. I tell about it in the author notes. The main character, Adam, Adam in Hebrew means humankind. Hunter, he's in search of peace. So Adam represents a violent humanity out of control in search for peace. Rennie, the main female character, R-E-N-I-E, is short for Irene, which in Greek mean, uh, means peace. And she's the only one who can complete his mythic story. So what's going on here in this novel that's just this fast-paced espionage is uh, the uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces that's behind all the Star Wars movies where you have main character leave ordinary world to go to extraordinary world meets uh, mentor, which is Yoda. In my case, it's Stump Stevens, who's, an, uh, by the way, the first African-American CIA, former CIA director, who's a great character. Uh, the president is a female Hispanic Roman Catholic named Victoria Sanchez. That's the president of the United States in my novel. And uh, anyway, he so, so he meets the mentor, but he has a shadow self like Luke Skywalker has Darth Vader. Mine is the Bedouin terrorist. So there's all, there's all this literary depth going on in a really fast-paced novel. Wow. You know, you mentioned that, you know, Alex Haley was the one, and it took you so many years to uh, to do it. What what were you involved with at the time? And was this that you had, it took 30 years, so what was you actually doing at the time that yeah, you yeah. and Alex had that conversation? I, I, was, I was senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church in downtown Dallas. Okay. And we had 100 on our staff and 34 of them did social justice ministry full time. It was the biggest social ministry program. And we were on TV all over the state and all that. So it was, Sunday morning worship was like sticking your finger in a socket. It was, you know, it was a live electric and it's still an incredible congregation. And that's where I was working. And we had something called Town Hall Forum. And that's why I invited Alex to uh, to speak. You know, I was on another program. Uh, it was an African-American radio show host. And he, he just, he said, you know, other people will say to you, you ought to write a book. You know, people will say that to you all the time. Yeah, you ought to write a book. But Alex Haley says you would do? He said, <laughs> you need to pay attention to that. 
Now, and you got great reviews, right? I mean, not just from Alex, but I mean, you got great reviews from all of them that I've looked at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of them. Uh, and one of them is by an award-winning New York Times journalist, Thomas Hayes. You know, he went over the top with his review. But what was fun for me, Gregory, on this was the research. And I traveled to seven foreign countries, but I also interviewed real hitmen. Yeah. Wow. I, I interviewed four real live former assassins, not still. Were they on your elder board at the church? <laughs> That's <laughs> hilarious. Just checking. <laughs> no, no. These were people. But one I did meet in Dallas uh, and, and then the son of one. Uh, that I was lecturing at a college. My wife says, don't name the college, but I was lecturing at a college. And at the end, this was year, several years ago, at the end, they were doing Q&A and they said, we know what you've written, all these books you've written, but what are you working on now? I said, working on a novel. And what's it about? And I told him. So this young man comes up to me and he's a philosophy professor. And he said, let's go have a drink. And I go, OK. And he said, I want to tell you about my dad who told me on his deathbed that that's what he used to do for the government, for the CIA, when he'd go on those trips around the world. And he said, you would never have known it. He was he was a regular little league dad in the neighborhood. You just you just wouldn't have known it. Another one was a taxi driver in New York City. Uh, and I had flown in for a board meeting there and I landed at midnight and he took me to the Brown Hotel downtown. And he, I like to talk to people, you know, I'm an extrovert. I walk into restaurants and I walk around to booths and tables and start asking people, is that good? Do you like it? Well, I, I guess my family says, we don't know. Yeah. It, but it's outcomes assessment, Gregory. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you don't want to just look at a menu. You want to, you want to. So I, I asked him, where, where are you from? New York, a cup of coffee, you know, had an exit. I said, how'd you get to Louisville, Kentucky? I came here after NAM. I said, what'd you do in NAM? I was in the Phoenix Project, and I, and I knew that was assassins. I said, you got to pick anybody else up tonight? No, you're my last one. If I cross your palm with a $100 bill, will you... Uh, to tell me some stories. I'll buy you a drink. Hell yeah. So we sat down. He started telling me. Now, another one, another American is a librarian at a seminary. I'm serious. <laughs> he had gone to seminary and he had been a hitman, gone to seminary. Now he's a librarian. I'm not going to name the seminary, but it's in this country. And I was doing an accreditation site visit as president of Pittsburgh Seminary for another seminary. He was on my site visit team. We were having dinner. I was telling what I was working. He said, that's what I used to do. You got to be kidding. <laughs> so he said, yeah, there are countries I can't even go to. So I took notes. Now, one was an uh, Israeli who was running a tennis tournament in Dallas that our older son was playing in. I got to talking to him, found out he was from Israel. I said, everybody has to be in the military in Israel. Yeah. What'd you do? Mossad. Oh, what unit? The Kidon unit. Well, I knew that was assassins. So I said, you got to tell me some stories. And he did. He opened up and he just, I don't know if he thought it was confession, get it out. He told me he had Arafat in his sights twice. And the order never came to take the shot. So I took notes from all these people. And the fifth one, and I'll stop after this. Sorry about this <laughs> long answer. You ask a you ask no, a great. you ask a professor what time it is, and he tells you how to make a watch, right? So anyway, I, 
I don't, I told my congregation, I don't mind if you, if you look at your watch while I'm preaching, but just don't take it off and shake it to see if it stopped. <laughs> so uh, this last one was a Russian up in the Ural Mountains, and I'm up there lecturing. I was lecturing at the Moscow Presbyterian Seminary and also the, the Orthodox University in Moscow. But then we went up to the Ural Mountains, to Lisva, and it was 40 below actual temperature, not just wind chill. And we were in a bomb shelter three stories below ground, and there was a church there with a praise band. And the pastor of this church, huge guy named Ivan, was a former Russian mafia chief who had murdered a lot of people and then gone to a seminary and now he's a minister. I want you to think for a moment about the Apostle Paul had murdered people. Oh, yeah. He became a minister. In fact, the cover of this book looks like Codex Sinaiticus because right. I have that stolen from the British Museum at the beginning of this novel. I typed all the Greek unseals there, and that's the beginning of chapter nine in Acts, the conversion of Saul, former murderer. So hidden in the cover is a metaphor for my main character. Wow. You know, it, it seems like you have a, a life that has gone full circle with so many different things. And there's so many elements that you have tied into this. Yeah. Is this just as rewarding as standing in front of one of the largest Presbyterian churches in, in the state of Texas, maybe the, the country, and preaching uh, a, a astounding sermon. Is there some same type of gratification? Yes, uh, in lots of different ways. Yeah. Um, you know, God has, I would say God, has blessed me with lots of interesting opportunities and people who gave me permission to do things, believed in me. You know, when you're young, you're kind of insecure. You don't know if you, what you're going to... Uh, in, a, in an interview the other day, this this guy asked me, he said, if you were to talk to a 15-year-old version of yourself, mm. what would you say? What do you think your 15-year-old version of yourself would say to you now? Really a great question. you know. And I remember saying something like, you know, I was pretty insecure when I was 14, 15 years old. I didn't, I wasn't Mr. Popular and, you know, I was more in college, but not in high school or middle school. And so, you, you need people to give you permission to do things. So I had a, a doctor in my office, a physician one day in Dallas. I'm in charge of the program next year for the uh, International Society for the Advancement of Humanistic Studies in Medicine. It's like Patch Adams doctors from all over the world. And every year we meet at a ski resort and we have a serious clinical lectures in the morning. Uh, we were in Banff and we've been in Zurich and next year it's Aspen. This is 1999, spring of 1999. And next year the subject's the brain. We have so-and-so from NIH and so-and-so from Mayo Clinic and 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 we have Michael Gazzaniga, the top cognitive neuroscientist in the world from Dartmouth. And we'd like for you to lecture on the brain. And I said, Henry, I know nothing about the brain except I have one. I went home and told my wife. She said, that's never stopped you before. <laughs> and so I took the challenge, Greg, and I, I read 50 books on cognitive neuroscience. I gave myself another PhD in the brain. And then I went and gave the lecture. PowerPoint's brand new. Gazzaniga and I are the only ones using it. And I created 
a philosophical ethical perspective on the mind-body equation, contrasting a more Hellenistic Cartesian dualism that separates mind and body and has doctors looking at patients as very uninteresting appendages to very interesting diseases over against a more Hebraic holistic approach because the Hebrew word for soul means all of who you are, not just this separate spiritual soul. It means your whole being. And it's been proven by Harold Koenig at uh, Duke University Medical Center that if a doctor looks at you as a whole person and not just an appendix that doctor has to take out in room 103, it actually helps the healing process. So I'm kind of a one-man show to change medical education. And I didn't realize that the head of continuing education at the American Medical Association was at that conference. And he wrote me when I got back the CEU evaluations. He said, Dr. Carl, you scored way above these medical school professors. Well, that's because I know how to talk and make things interesting, right? But because he was there, I started getting invited all over the country. I've done this at Cornell, University of Arkansas School of Medicine, and it's grown into other lectures. This one's called Brains, Bodies, Beliefs, and Behavior. I'll do it at Houston anytime if you want me to come down there. And I've done one on brains, cancer, and hope, and another one on uh, uh, faith, the brain, and pain. And I've done it at the China Academy of Social Science. And the point I'm making, and I make this point when I do this lecture, and it's really important for your listeners, particularly this wonderful theme that you have with your show which is you can do way more than you think you can. Excellent. And so I'll, I will look at, at, at the crowd and I'll say the biggest surprise for me when I, I mean, I had to learn everything about the amygdala, the hippocampus, the, the limbic. I had to learn all this stuff because they were, they were going to ask me questions, you know? And, and so I said, you, the biggest surprise for me was that there are billions of neurons bouncing in your brain right now. Then I'll look at somebody on the front row. Well, maybe only millions in yours. You need coffee, you know, and something like that. Get the neurons back. And, and, and so, so I said, now think of it for a moment. There are billions of neurons bouncing in each one of our brains right now, making trillions of synaptic connections, which means that there are more synaptic connections going on in your brain right now than there are stars in the Milky Way. And if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. What does that mean? That means you can do way more than you think you can. Even write a novel when Alex Haley says, Bill, you need to write a novel. Do you think that we will be absolutely shocked out of our socks, and we probably won't have any when we get to heaven, when we have that full mind of Christ? Because I don't think we tap into a small, per, a single digit, percentage of what our brain is capable of uh, besides it uh, to healing itself, the plasticity of oh, the brain to be oh, able to oh. repair those neurons. Oh, neuroplasticity is unbelievable. I mean, I mean, uh, John W. McDonald at the Kruger Cancer and uh, uh, the, Kruger, uh, the Kruger Institute up in Baltimore, he's taken paraplegics and one of them's won an Ironman contest. Yeah. Now, if you have a total spinal separation, no go. But you remember in Downton Abbey, uh, the, one of the main characters is injured during World War One, and he comes back in a wheelchair, whether to marry Mary or not. But then he then he recovers. Now, and and what they do at at the Kennedy Kruger Institute is they 
They take people whose feet can't move at all. Their legs won't move. And they put them on an exercise cycle and, the, and it, it moves them. It, it, gets the, it gets the feet moving and the legs. And after a week, a few weeks, all of a sudden neurons go, wait a minute, I, I need to pick up the slack for the dead neurons. And then they come back. It's unbelievable. So when somebody has a stroke and music brings them back, it's unbelievable. Uh, we had a woman in uh, my congregation who had a, a stroke, and it was I, I found out it was in the Broca's area, which is where speech is produced. And uh, so I said, well, let's try music. It was Christmas time. And uh, the neurologist came in, and I said, so it's in the Broca's area. He says, who are you? And I said, I'm, just, I'm her pastor. And he says, how do you know all this? So I've been lecturing on the brain all these years. And so I said, let's try singing Christmas songs and Christmas carols. So they did. And I walked in the next time and she said, Ingle Els, Ingle Els. I mean, it was, it, the brain is so amazing. So I'm sorry, you get no, me going. No, that, that fascinates me. And, you know, even in this very, you know, light autobiography of like the Awakenings, the Robin Williams movie, where uh, they had all those people come out of that stillness, that silence. And unbelievable. Those, those stories just absolutely blow me away when we understand, really. I don't think we'll never understand no. what the brain has. No, I think you're right. I think it, and, and so that's, I, I did a post on LinkedIn not long ago, which was titled in all caps, never, ever give up. Yeah. Whatever you're going through, do not give up. I mean, there were many times in 30 years I gave up on this guy, right? But patience, persistence. Unbelievable. I'll tell you what, this has been one of the most enjoyable interviews I have done in a very long time, William. And I appreciate uh, you being on. I, I really wanted to try to pick your brain a little bit about religion, about being a chaplain, uh, uh, and the Greek scholar. Uh I, I yeah, wanted to yeah. find out that I got a little bit of tidbits of that tonight too. But do you, when you read the Bible, uh, do you? Is it hard for you to skim the surface, or because of that Greek scholar mentality, you go, "Oh, what that really means is." Yeah, no, yeah. I tell, I tell lay. I actually teach lay people Greek, and I I had seventy or eighty of my members in Dallas go through the same Greek course that I taught at Union Seminary. They, wow. Instead of six-week crash course, the boot camp, Paris Island of Union Seminary, we spread it across a year. I gave them the same exams. And I say to them, this is, you can go so much deeper when you learn Greek. Yeah. I'll just give you one super quick example, Ephesians 2.10. Uh, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay, workmanship. That word, oh man, I can do a lot on that. God is the potter, we are the clay. You know, you can do a lot with that one. But look at the word workmanship. It's poema. It's the word from which Aristotle got the word poem. We get the word poem from this. So what Paul is saying is we are God's poems. And I think about that. You don't see that in English. Now, uh, you know, some of us are uh, limericks. Some of us are trite couplets, you know, I mean. God is rewriting the lines of our poem every single day. You don't see that in English. 
And there's example after example when you get into the Greek. It's just so much more fun. Hey, and people will, people will say, people will say, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I'm telling you, I the way I advertise it is you want your you want to delay dementia and Alzheimer's, work your brain. Yeah. Work your brain and exercise your body. So that's how I did it. I said, you want to delay dementia and uh, Alzheimer's? Take Greek. And they signed up for it like crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah. So I would love, would you come back and be on another show sometime? Sure. Sure. I would love to just uh, sit and talk and laugh and hear and, and listen and (laughs) share stories uh, to two pastors uh, talking about, I bet we could do a lot of stuff and people think it's fiction, but it actually happened in our pews (laughs) of our churches. I would love to have you back on. Sure. Hold up your book one more time. Yeah, Assassin's Manuscript. Yeah, and get the audible version with David Carl. He literally brings what he thinks is a really good story to life, and it's like listening to a movie to hear him read this book. It's unbelievable. And how long is that audio book? Eight hours and 37 minutes. I'm going to be driving to Tulsa soon. That would be an awesome uh, eight-hour drive. and, Start and, with and, it and end with it. And, and you have my email and my phone number, and we'll we'll talk about it afterwards. I will want to know who your favorite characters are when we finish, okay? That'd be great. William, thank you so much for being with us tonight. God bless. Everybody get on Amazon right now and buy this, buy the audio version too, and uh, share it with a friend and tell them to listen to this interview. And we will have you back on, uh, William, and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Tell your wife she did a great job uh, with not sticking her head in and telling me what to say and what not to say. <laughs> That's thank right. Thank you. <laughs> Tell Great her to thank be you for you. sharing you with us tonight. I will. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. All right. Like we do each and every week, I always like to end. I don't. I think William probably said it better than what I'm going to. Uh, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing right now, no matter what you're going to head into tomorrow, if it's going to be a major storm in your life or you're in one right now, there's always, always hope. Never give up. You can do it. You have it in you. You have more ability through God and his power inside of you. Just allow it to come through and give it. Don't give up. Hang in there and keep fighting for it. It's worth it. Get this book. You will thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. God bless you. Join us next week right here for another live edition of Breaking the Silence in Houston, Texas. Good night. Have an awesome night. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832-396-6525 or email him at shatteredbythedarkness at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station 1 for the next episode of Breaking the Silence.